The best version of you and me. The best version of you and me minimizes the likelihood that forgiveness and reconciliation will be necessary. And when it is, we are more likely to deliver in a timely and efficient manner. What does the best version of you and me really mean? Two versions of us both? Well, at least for me, yes. Most of the time, I'm a pretty good guy. A good husband, a good father, a good team member, a good boss. But there are occasions when I'm self-centered, selfish, and talk way too much about me. One version of me eats pretty healthy and orders the grilled salmon. The other version of me craves and gives in to White Castle. One version of my language is pretty clean. The other version of my language is filthy. Sometimes I handle stress pretty well. Other times I can be a basket case. And if I'm acting like a rear end at home, odds are I'm acting like a rear end at work or vice versa. In short, I'm a paradox. Sound familiar? In this chapter, I'm simply going to share a few models, a few checklists, and a few ideas to recalibrate the best version of you. Because when we strive to be the best version of ourselves, the need for forgiveness and reconciliation in the workplace and in your private life is greatly diminished. And when it is needed, it's done in a more meaningful and timely manner. Nothing new follows. There are no new models, only new applications. We're at different place in our careers, and for the first time, we may have been exposed to these models. Hopefully, we're more motivated, more secure in who we are to make the needed changes. During the writing of this book, my wife had to pull me aside and provide some serious feedback on the impact of my actions on both her and our family. It stung. I was tempted to defend my actions and build my case as I've done in the past. Instead, I listened. I apologized. And I'm changing because of my wife and family deserve the best version of me. My employees deserve the best version of me. Yours do as well. So what's the outline for the chapter of the best version of you and me? We're going to talk about the Johari window, a social style model, emotional intelligence, stress management, think, laugh, and cry, seven habits of highly effective people, rich habits, the power of a handwritten note, first impressions, packing parachutes, the oxygen in the room. You don't have to say anything. We're going to talk about grit, having a yes face, thinking and growing rich, the optics, the energy bus, how to build rapport, and the man slash woman in the mirror. The Johari Window. The Johari Window was created by two psychologists, Joseph Luft and Harrington Ingram. In 1955, they developed this model as a technique to help other people understand their relationship with themselves as well as others. There are two key ideas behind this tool. 
Number one, you can build trust with others by disclosing information about yourself. Number two, with the help of feedback from others, you can learn about yourself and resolve personal issues. So across the horizontal axis are things I know and things I don't know. Down the vertical axis are things other people know and things other people don't know. A four-paned window divides personal awareness into four different types represented by four quadrants. There's the arena. There's the blind spot, the closet, and the potential. In the first quadrant, things I know, things other people know, is the arena. The more we can enhance the arena in our organizations, the closer we move to peak performance. We've all experienced that road trip with others, and as a result of being in that car for an extended time, we felt like we got to know each other better. Increasing the arena makes it easier to demonstrate our soft skills with knowledge outside of work. For example, you can demonstrate the arena by asking that coworker, How's your band coming along? I remember you telling us how you played jazz over the weekends. How do we increase the arena? Consider a Monday morning session after a long weekend and before starting the workday. Simply getting your team together and asking everyone to share what they did over the weekend. It may sound something like this. You know, before we get started this morning, let's go around the room and, and talk about what everyone did this weekend. If you don't have anything to share or if it's still too early, simply say, I pass. No big deal. Initially, participation could be an issue. But if you do this on a regular basis, not only will your team grow accustomed to this activity, they will look forward to it. We all have the need for emotional air and opportunities like this are important and too important to pass it by. It not only increases the arena, it increases productivity and employee engagement. Highly effective people are focused on others, are good listeners, and are sincerely interested in expanding the arena through self-disclosure. The second quadrant, things I don't know, but things other people do know, is called the blind spot. We all have blind spots. The key is to solicit feedback on overcoming those blind spots. Do we act upon that feedback? Are we open to the feedback or do we get defensive? Do we make excuses or simply say, thank you for the feedback? The key to giving feedback is making sure it's specific, it's timely, and it addresses the issue or behavior versus making it personal. And most importantly, the person you're giving feedback must trust you. If not, you're wasting both your time and their time. If there's trust, there's a good chance they will hear the feedback, it might sting, and act upon your advice or suggestion. If they don't trust you, they will think you're trying to hurt them and take it personally. Without trust, the likelihood of any change in behavior is unlikely. How do we eliminate the blind spots? 
If you are sincere and committed to change, simply ask the person for their feedback. I suggest a private setting and a time convenient for both of you. Perhaps you can call asking for them to sit down and provide candid feedback over a cup of coffee. Perhaps you could do it after hours. In a team setting, it could be a statement that you're committed to being the best you can be and would sincerely like feedback in general or on a particular topic. You're likely to get some resistance from certain people who don't feel comfortable delivering this feedback publicly. In this setting, you could simply say that you understand this dynamic and that your door is always open for more personal feedback. Don't be defensive. Don't make excuses. Thank them for their feedback. Act upon the feedback. And don't shoot the messenger. If you fail to act upon the feedback or shoot the messenger, you'll never get feedback again. And your blind spots will continue to exist and expand. Highly effective people have a goal of reducing and or eliminating blind spots. They seek feedback. They don't shoot the messenger. And most importantly, they act upon the feedback. If you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always gotten. The third quadrant, things I know, things other people don't know, is called the closet. We all have things we don't feel comfortable sharing with others, and this is completely understandable. In fact, we need to understand and appreciate this feeling in others. We also need to understand and appreciate the possibility we make other people feel uncomfortable when we share information that should have been left unsaid. Certain personalities are more prone to this than others. I have an expressive personality, and my wife often describes me as an open book. This trait, sharing personal information, can be used to build rapport and trust with others but it can also make some people feel uncomfortable. We need to understand, appreciate, and respect others' need to keep personal business private, even when we don't completely understand why they hesitate to share the details. Highly effective people are careful not to make others uncomfortable through inappropriate self-disclosure and or prying into personal issues. The fourth quadrant, things I don't know, things others don't know, is called the potential. This window receives the least attention, but in many ways, it's the most important. This is personal and organizational exploration at its best. Perhaps you and others may not have thought you would be good at a particular task, but you take the risk, others take the risk, and the potential becomes a reality. I grew up with a speech impediment, and in eighth grade found myself in speech class. While the speech therapy worked, I was apprehensive to speak publicly and lacked confidence. My teacher didn't consider me for the speech team for various and understandable reasons. In fact, my reputation as the class clown probably factored into her perception of me more so than my speaking ability. But what a wonderful thing happened when I pushed myself and took a risk. 
I signed up for the speech team, and despite any reservations of my likelihood of success, my teacher took me under her wings. Thanks to the potential, I now make a living speaking across the country. Highly effective people look for the best in others. They push others to be their best and are open to the possibilities of redefining both self and others. Some questions for consideration. From a personal perspective, which quadrant do you think has shaped your life? From an organizational perspective, which quadrant do you think has the greatest impact, both positive and negative? How do you increase the arena? What strategies do you use in eliminating your blind spots? What specific examples do you have related to the power of the potential? What applications do you see for using the Johari window? A suggested activity for the Johari window. Build the Johari window with your team. Start with the arena by going around the room and having everyone tell one thing others may not know about them personally. Transition to the blind spot by asking for one thing that you suggest the other person consider doing differently. Be careful with this portion of the exercise. Consider a trained facilitator and establish clear ground rules. End with the potential by giving those that feel comfortable share an area that would stretch them personally or professionally if given the opportunity. Lastly, debrief the activity. The appreciation of differences. In over 25 years in business, I have rarely seen or experienced discrimination in the workplace as related to race, gender, age, national origin, or sexual preferences. Not that it doesn't exist. Unfortunately, it does. But I have been blessed not to experience it or witnessed it. What I have seen and experienced throughout my career is a lack of appreciation of differences on how one generally approaches life. While natural and understandable, assuming others see the world out of the same lens is unrealistic at best and damaging at worst. We're born with certain personalities. My personality is different than my sister's. Our parents never set us down and said, Patty, you're going to be analytical. Greg, you're going to be expressive. I didn't set out to meet and marry someone opposite than me like many couples do. It just happens, as opposites do attract. I didn't intend to place my likes and wants and my preferences on my children only to hear, Dad, I'm not like you, but it happened. It wasn't my intention to get crossways with my boss because I didn't give him the information and the details he needed, but it happened. And at the expense of my career with that particular company. In short, our personalities, our approach to problems, and how we view the world varies from person to person. We all bring value to the table. 
The key is to value both what others and what we bring to the table while understanding and appreciating the differences. If we can harness that diversity, we succeed both individually and organizationally. People buy on emotion and they justify with facts. You know, you are the message. Roger Ailes, nationally acclaimed political consultant, media owner, and author said it best, you are the message. Unfortunately, we usually spend more time on the content of the message versus the most appropriate delivery method and communication style. And to make communication more challenging, research indicates only 7% of the message is derived from the actual words we use. The remaining message is from the tone of our voice, 38%. And then the nonverbal communication, 55%. What about our body language? According to social psychologist Amy Cuddy, the 55%, the nonverbals, specifically body language, is a significant predictor in how others see us as well as how we see ourselves. Cuddy suggests power posing, standing in a posture of confidence, even if we don't feel confident, can affect testosterone, that dominance hormone, and cortisol, the stress hormone levels in the brain, and might even impact our chances for success. Cuddy's theory is that because our bodies change our minds and our minds change our behaviors, our behavior changes can change our outcomes. Rather than fake it until you make it, Cuddy suggests we fake it until you become it. The use of communication models. There have been thousands of books written on communication theory. I've read many of those books, and as an undergraduate communication major, the required courses were so academic and boring, I routinely questioned my choice of study. It wasn't until I was exposed to numerous communication models did I intuitively understand the communication process. And there's definitely no shortage of communication models and personality profiles out there. So, a few assumptions and dangers of using a communication model. The first assumption is that as adults, we learn from models. While I could describe certain aspects of a communication process, the retention level would be minimal without a mental model. The second assumption is that for the most part, everything we do as related to communication is productive. It's only when we take this asset and use it inappropriately that it becomes a liability. The third assumption is that from a communication perspective, we are born with the ability to view the world from basically four windows. While we view the world from all four of these windows, we tend to look out of one or more than others. The fourth assumption relates to the value of building rapport with the one we're attempting to influence. Rapport simply means that we like and feel comfortable with people we perceive as similar with those we feel understand and appreciate us. Having a communication model increases the likelihood that we can predict and match one's preferred mode of communication. All models are dangerous, 
and some are useful. The fifth assumption is that it can be counterproductive and potentially dangerous to label others or yourself with any single model. Individually, our communication patterns are way too complex to be described or explained in any model. The intent of the social style model is to simply add a tool in our communications repertoire, enhancing individual performance and organizational effectiveness. In short, to enhance these soft skills and emotional intelligence. The social styles model. The social styles model was designed to measure the assertiveness, responsiveness, and versatility of an individual based on perceptions of his or her communication behaviors. The model is established by looking at two types of behavior. At one end of the spectrum, the communicator is task-focused. In a team meeting, for example, a supervisor who is task-focused may exhibit this behavior by assertively proclaiming, folks, it's 8 o'clock, let's get started. On the other extreme, a team member in the same meeting who tends to be more people-focused may delay the meeting to allow members and guests to socialize and discuss the weekend's activities. The meeting may not start on time, but in her mind, the same time spent is an investment in the meeting's success. Both approaches are effective, just different. The challenge is to be in the middle of the social styles model with the flexibility of moving in either direction depending on the situation and the needs of the team or the individual. On the horizontal axis of the social styles model are two additional communication extremes which complete this model. On the right-hand side is tell-directed. As a team member who is more tell-directed, they may exhibit this behavior by forcefully saying, you know, we've talked about this for years. We need to just do something and stop studying it. On the left-hand side of the model, a team member in the same meeting who is more ask-directed may exhibit this behavior by raising his or her hand and saying, I'm not sure if others feel like I do, but don't you all think that we've studied this maybe long enough? Again, both styles are effective, just different approaches. Again, the challenge is to be in the middle of this model with the flexibility of moving in either direction depending on the situation and the needs of the team or the individual. These four quadrants are the foundation of the social styles model. At the top right, communicators are task-focused and tell-directed. Those who look out of this window more than the other three are drivers. Key point, while we look out of all four windows, we typically look out of one or two more than the others. In a presentation, assuming it's a larger audience with representation from all four social styles, which is typically a safe assumption, target the drivers first. If you fail to do this, drivers will likely walk out on you faking a phone call or a restroom break. When communicating with the driver, 
Don't waste time by asking about family or talking about your golf game. Quickly state the purpose for your visit. Drivers are more influenced by the bottom line, more from the what than from the whom. A key point, effective communicators customize the delivery of the message based on the communication preferences with whom they are communicating. In the top left quadrant are the analyticals. Task focused, ask directed. In a presentation, target the analyticals next after the drivers or risk them mentally checking out on you by doodling or daydreaming. When targeting an analytical, slow down your presentation and do your homework. Outline the main points and anticipate the thorough questions. Analyticals are influenced by the research says or the data suggests. Analyticals, like drivers, are influenced more from what rather than from whom. In the bottom right quadrant are expressives, people-focused and tell-directed. With expressives, be excited about your topic or they'll never completely engage. They typically want to spend more time getting to know you and are usually animated. Expressives, they readily share information and are easy to read. They can have short attention spans and a low need for detail. Provide bullet points speeding up your presentation from your previous meeting with the analyticals. Most expressives would rather slow you down than speed you up. Expressives are influenced more from whom than from what. Get away from the podium, use gestures, and be excited about your topic. Don't make the expressive wonder if you believe in your topic. In the bottom left quadrant are the aimables. People focused, ask directed. Aimables will not be influenced by you unless you're likable. Aimables, similar to the expressives, are influenced more from whom than from what. When communicating with the aimable, take your time and be sincere. Personal stories work well with aimables. Arrive early to the meeting and greet as many participants as possible. This personal touch will build rapport with your audience as well as reduce your nervousness once you start your presentation. Interestingly, many marketing materials follow this sequencing of communication. Enter USA Today. The first section of the USA Today is a bullet-pointed highlight of the day's news for the driver. Secondly, the money section, analyticals. Third, the sports section for those expressives. And then fourth, the life section for the aimables. The following are some assumptions, absent information about your actual audience. You know, while presentation should include all four social style quadrants, depending on the audience, you have to make some decisions. For instance, early morning meetings. I would suggest you primarily focus on the drivers and analyticals. Evening presentations. I would primarily focus on the expressives and aimables. 
Business groups, probably driver analytical. Technical groups, analyticals. Educators, expressive aimables. What about a sales and marketing group? Probably expressive aimables. Younger audiences, probably expressive aimables. You'll have to make the choice. Stress shows in your communication. Each social style quadrant has a backup behavior that appears during stressful situations. Under normal conditions, we operate out of our preferred and dominant style, an effective mode of communication. However, under stress, we go to our backup response mode. Backup modes are unproductive at best and often destructive. Individuals who habitually operate in their backup mode are unemployable. Politicians who habitually operate in the backup mode are unelectable. Employees who habitually operate in their backup mode are at best ineffective and at worst will sabotage an organization's bottom line. Soft skills that emotional intelligence are rarely present but often needed when operating in one's backup mode. The lack of soft skills and that emotional intelligence is often a contributing factor, if not the contributing factor, for the stress and resorting to our backup mode. The backup mode of a driver is autocratic. Common phrases used to describe drivers who are operating in their backup mode are autocratic, dictatorial, my way or the highway. The backup mode of the analytical is to withdraw. Common phrases used to describe the analyticals who are operating out of their backup mode are, I'll take my ball and go home, or I'll hide out in my office for a couple hours. The backup mode of an expressive is to attack. If a fellow coworker has ever snapped or sworn at you, he or she was most likely an expressive. The backup mode of the aimable is to acquiesce or to give in. Common phrases used to describe an aimable who operates out of their backup mode are wishy-washy or they're always giving in, giving in, and giving in. The value of being aware of one's backup mode is the ability to monitor both individual behavior as well as recognizing when others are under stressful conditions. Ideally, we operate in our normal communication mode most of the time. When we experience stress, we go to our backup mode. We recognize this shift and do whatever possible to get back to normal, a more productive communication style. Unfortunately, this doesn't always happen. A third part of the social styles model is a phenomenon called zine out which should be avoided at all costs. Zing out occurs while under stress and we cannot or do not get back to our normal, more productive style of communication. We travel from one backup mode to another backup mode. The driver under stress goes to his or her backup mode of autocratic. If they cannot get back to their normal driver style, he or she will move to the backup style of the analytical, which is to withdraw. 
At this point, if they cannot recognize they are under stress and move back to their normal style of communication, they will go to the expressive backup mode and attack. The Z is completed as the driver then heads to the backup mode of the aimable and acquiesces or gives in. An example of a driver zing out was Richard Nixon during the 70s Watergate crisis. Nixon became autocratic, demanding key staff to engage in illegal activity, only later to withdraw to Camp David. Nixon eventually began his attack by blaming liberals, the communists, the Democrats, and many others. Nixon completed his zing out by resigning, acquiescing. Many feel Bill Clinton demonstrated the zing out pattern during the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Bill Clinton, the driver, became autocratic by controlling all data and accounts of his relationship with Lewinsky. Like Nixon, he retreated to Camp David and actually traveled abroad and more frequently than before, the withdrawal stage. Predictably, Clinton and his staff started their attack on Ken Starr, the Republicans, and the vast right-wing conspiracy. As only Clinton could do, he cheated the social styles model and sort of acquiesced by going on national TV and saying, I did not have a relationship with that woman. A full-scale acquiesce would have been a complete resignation, not in Clinton's playbook. The analytical's backup is to withdraw. If the analytical cannot reduce her stress and return to a normal mode of communication, the analytical will travel across the social styles model to autocratic, usually with their data, and down to the AccuS, completing the zing out pattern with an attack. An example would be a financial team member attempting to persuade an organization that the numbers simply don't add up, and under stress, hides out in their office, the withdrawal. They eventually emerge becoming autocratic with their many reports. After failing to convince the decision makers, the analytical throws their hands up in the air and says, go ahead and take this company down the tubes, the AccuS, only later to reappear and attack by saying, I told you so. The expressive's backup mode is to attack. After the attack, usually verbal, the expressive will realize how bad they just screwed up and apologize, the AccuS. If the other person will not accept the apology, the expressive will then become autocratic by making a case of how they're not appreciated and no one understands. Expressives will then leave the scene, withdrawal. Expressives will not stay away very long as they love a good fight. Expressives under stress are usually hall park and no bite. Aimable's backup mode is to acquiesce. The three other styles, the driver, the analytical, and the expressive, have the ability to recognize when they are in their backup mode and exhibit the proper stress management and return to normal communication. While the aimable may recognize their zing out, they reach a point of no return very quickly in the process. An aimable will give in and give in and give in and give in the acquiescing. But run for the hills when the aimable starts zing out. The aimable attacks, very uncharacteristic for that aimable, and then withdraws. 
The final zen-out phase for the aimable is to become autocratic by controlling the relationship. While the expressive under stress attacks with more bark than more bite, the aimable growls and growls and growls, but when they bite, it is vicious. Versatility. While no one would suggest an analytical attempt to be an expressive or a driver try to become an aimable, the communication challenge is what we call style versatility. Style versatility is a reflection of a person's willingness to adapt and cope with a variety of individuals and situations without sacrificing his or her own personal communication style. In short, if your favorite tool is a hammer, be careful not to treat everyone else like a nail. And remember, you are the message. Your smile is your logo. Your personality is your business card. And how you leave others feeling after an encounter with you is your trademark. Some questions for consideration. Number one. Which style of the social style model best describes you? Driver, analytical, expressive, aimable. Number two, what would you consider to be the strengths as related to your preferred style? What about your weaknesses? Which style drives you crazy and why? What could you learn from that style? that drives you crazy, if you could just simply better understand and appreciate that style. Number six, what's the predominant style in your workplace? How does that style help? How does that style hurt? What is the least dominant style in your workplace? What is the impact of not having that style represented in your workplace? Question number eight, Describe times when you go to your backup style. The cause, the effect, and how do you prevent going to your backup style? Question number nine. Describe when others go to their backup style. The cause, the effect. Number 10. What's the impact of zen out in the workplace? What about at home? Question number 11, how does one achieve balance and try staying in the middle of the social style model? Question number 12, have you ever been credible at the expense of being likable? What about likable at the expense of being credible? Question number 14, does your organization's marketing material factor in the unique communication needs and styles and target that audience of the social style model. Considered an expert in human behavior and organizational dynamics, Greg Coker is the author of Building Cathedrals, The Power of Purpose, and The Soft Skills Field Manual, The Unwritten Rules for Succeeding in the Workplace. Greg's website is gregcokerdevelopment.com. He can be reached at 270 223 8343.